Let's open our Bibles and hear the good news. Let's hear what God has written for the benefit of his people throughout the centuries. The word of God put on paper by the work of the Holy Spirit through his servants. We're looking at 2 Corinthians and we're starting chapter 3 today. So if you can find 2 Corinthians chapter 3 in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we have extras in the back uh, at the Usher Station, uh, some beautiful hard-covered Bibles. And if you'd like to have uh, a Bible, we can certainly arrange for you to take one of those, or we have others. I think I even have a few large print Bibles. And uh, as you're turning to our text, let me welcome those who may be watching online. It's a joy to have you online. I'm not sure how the audio is working because our amplifier in the auditorium is not working. So hopefully online you can hear us. Technology, thank you. God bless you. And now let's turn and hear God's word, the first six verses of this chapter. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians again. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not the, of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word, may he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey. Amen. Paul uh, outrightly talks about the question that some were pressing him, does he need a letter of recommendation? A letter of recommendation. Just in the last two weeks, I wrote a letter of recommendation for someone. Yes, I know the person. They have a great work ethic. They seem to be wholesome people. I recommend them to you. I do that quite a bit if you're looking for help, and I know you. It's not a new practice, as one historian has written. The letter of recommendation was already a recognizable genre in ancient Greece and was... Uh, sufficiently entrenched by Cicero's time to earn an explicit Latin technical title. And the Latin translates as letters of commendation. And they were usually for a younger client seeking favor from a new patron. For Cicero, these letters, says the historian, were understood not to compel but to request favor for the individual mentioned and to conjure up the atmosphere Uh, That was implied, a free exchange of favors among friends. These ancient letters, he says, tended to glorify the author rather than the applicant and to emphasize the cementing or extending of patronage networks 
rather than the actual merits of the candidate. Quote, unquote, you know I am trustworthy, therefore my clients will be worthy of your trust as well. The same historian who was writing about that back in 2018 goes on to say, in the current job market, many of us are asked to write and read more LOR, letters of recommendation, than ever before. And our prose seems to get even more formulaic. And the electronic obstacle course we must negotiate to submit or access letters simply adds to the frustration of the exercise. Can we salvage the usefulness of this genre? That's a good question, but it's not our question. But Paul does raise this purpose. Do I need letters of recommendation for you folks in Corinth? You see, in Corinth, there were imposters, super apostles that showed up, and they had letters. Oh, yeah. We don't know what they were, but that's implied by how Paul responds. They had some kind of letter, probably from somebody in Jerusalem, but probably not the apostles. More likely, Jewish Christians who were part of the Judaizer movement who said, real Christians really have to do the Mosaic law. And you have to be circumcised. You have to be kosher in what you, you have to do all the Jewish things to be a real Christian. That's probably some of their emphasis. Because we see that Paul stresses the difference of the new covenant as opposed to the old covenant. So anyways, they're waving about their letters of recommendation. And some in Corinth may have said, well, where's Paul's letter? You know what? Paul's not even one of the original 12, is he? Hmm. Paul, do you have a letter of reference? So Paul raises these rhetorical questions, and the way it's phrased in Greek, the answer is obviously no. Do we have to commend ourselves again? No. Do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation? No, is the answer to the rhetorical question. You see, as Ken Hughes says, such letters would be ridiculous in light of the lengthy association with those Corinthians. Paul, in effect, declares the absurdity of the idea that he needed human commendation so that he could present his true credentials coming in power with the Holy Spirit. You see, when Paul first came to Corinth, there wasn't a church. There weren't believers unless they were passing through town. It was Paul, in the power of the Spirit, with good news as he preached it, saw many believe. And as the work got harder, the Lord whispered in Paul's ear and mind, he says, keep on working for I have many in this city. And Paul labored at Corinth. (laughs) Did he need a letter? Do we need to check his GPA from seminary? I'm glad we don't do that. Paul says that's ridiculous. And instead he turns the whole thing around under inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he gets them looking. You know where he gets them looking? Not at how great a guy Paul is. Where do you think the apostle turns their eyes? You ought to know this. He turns them to Jesus. And just as there was a church in Corinth because of Jesus, there's a church here in Clifton Park, more than one, because of Jesus. 
There are individual lives being changed, turned from darkness into light, from what we once were to what we are becoming, because Jesus is at work through the gospel. So that's what Paul's pointing to. He's wrestling with these believers in Corinth who've hit some obstacles and are hearing other voices. It's as if he says what the writer to Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus. The message this morning has two headings fitting with the two major thrusts of the text before us. The first heading is this, transformed lives bear witness to the gospel. Transformed lives bear witness to the gospel. And in a few minutes time we'll look at Paul and see that confidence for ministry is from the spirit. And only two headings, and also another change this morning to the structure of the sermon. We're going to do some applications after each of those points. Because there's a lot to learn and apply. So if you have your copy of the sermon note sheet, you'll see that. I'll try to be clear as we go along. Let's take up that first heading, transform lives, changed lives, lives in the process of sanctification after justification. They bear witness to the gospel and the power of the gospel. Paul is going to call them living letters. But what does he say first? Verse 2. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. To be read over and over again. Readily accessible. He says, you are a letter on this preacher's heart. Paul himself was transformed by the gospel and transformed by the preaching of it. And these people, as cantankerous as they could be in Corinth, were dear to him. As a pastor, as a preacher, the people that sit beside me and sit before me are dear to me, even the difficult people. I remember the first time many years ago someone said something very helpful to me when I was complaining that there was a certain problem with someone in the church that's kind of hindering the ministry. I want to get all these things done. And this wise brother said to me decades ago, you know, Pastor Dave, those difficult people are not the hindrances to ministry. They are the ministry. Those are the ones you're here to help. And God writes the, on the preacher's heart those to whom he preaches, and the pastor's heart those to whom he shepherds. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul acknowledged that he had become their spiritual father in Christ. He planted that church. He had seen people come to Christ. He'd seen whole families come to Christ, and, and, and so many baptized. He didn't baptize many of them, but he was there. And watch that growth. And he watched leaders emerge. And yes, he saw divisions and challenges emerge as factions, overemphasis on spiritual gifts. Paul's probably pulling his hair out. You have a spiritual gift. Don't fight over it. Don't make it the end all. Use it to serve others. And so he wrote his whole first letter to bring correctives. And now he shares as their spiritual father. He says, you're on my heart. Dads, we know what it's like when the kids borrow the car and they're supposed to be home and they're not home. 
That was a little rougher back before we had cell phones. I wonder where they are. I can't text them. I can't call. I can't look on an app. You know a father's heart. Mothers, you always have a mother's heart. Paul is saying here, I have a gospel-touched heart. You are written on our hearts. And Paul's ministry was touched by that. Transformed lives bear witness to the gospel. Paul says that those living in Corinth were a living letter for all to see. In other words, he's saying, uh, Corinthians, you want to see my letter? Get a mirror. Look around the room. You are my letter. Isn't that an amazing twist? The people are letters. He says that so clearly here, uh, beginning in verse 3. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. You, your existence, shows that I was faithful in delivering the gospel. You want to know if I'm a minister of the gospel? You want to know if Christ sent me? Look around, he says. According to one commentator, Paul shifted the proof of his apostleship from himself onto the shoulders of the Corinthians. If Paul is not genuine, they are bogus. Paul is no longer on the defensive, but on the offensive. He's teaching, he's preaching, he's steering, he's helping the very people that were barking at him and doubting him. You know the old proverb I used to quote it rather shortly. Uh, officially, the proverb says, the proof of the pudding is in the eating of it. I used to just say the proof is in the pudding, and I left out the eating altogether. Something looks good, but is it good? How do you know? You have to take a bite. And uh, that's uh, easy to do when something looks good. Paul is saying that to the Corinthians. Take a look around. Taste. And see, see, what do you see? What are the fruits of my ministry? Your transformed lives authenticate the message I brought and authenticate the messenger who brought it. That's what Paul is saying. You people, the church in Corinth, are living proof for all to see. And he emphasizes not only that they're letters and he gets them to see what the gospel has accomplished through his work, but he points out how they came to be. You see, Paul is not pointing out, look what an eloquent preacher I am. No, Paul is pointing them to Christ. He says uh, uh, that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit. He's talking metaphorically, figuratively, kids. He's saying these people are who they are because of the Spirit of the living God who worked on their hearts. They are a letter written by the Spirit. They are not a letter written by Paul. What changed the lives of those cosmopolitan pagans in Corinth? You know, ancient Corinth, it looked like a combination of New York City, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas, all rolled into one. All the seedy parts of the city all rolled into one. It was a center of power and commerce and immorality. People from all over the place. We've talked about that background before. How in the world did you ever plant a church there? 
I remember years ago hearing that there was a wonderful evangelical church in downtown Las Vegas. I was in seminary, and for some reason I just hadn't pictured that because of the public impression you have when you think of Las Vegas. And they were actually hosting a conference. They're a very healthy, vibrant church. They'd seen conversions. I'm going, yeah, why would anyone write off a city? Paul says that what happened in Corinth wasn't his doing. It was the Spirit of God at work. It was the Spirit who came to Corinth. For us, we're thankful that 30, 40 years ago, it was the Holy Spirit who came to Clifton Park and worked here. And we should have been watching for, as Paul writes, uh, his listeners should have been aware that this was the plan of God all along to bring about something new. Because Paul is using language here. He's talking about ink versus spirit. And then he has this other phrase, not written on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. That's a very literal translation. What are you talking about tablets of stone? It's a reference to the hard-heartedness of an unbeliever who has a heart of stone, but they are given a heart of flesh. Turn with me in the Old Testament, it might take you a minute to find it, to Ezekiel. It's one of the large prophets. So you'll find it, uh, there's Isaiah, Jeremiah, and you'll find Ezekiel chapter 11. I'm going to read two verses and then two verses from Ezekiel 36. Why? Because Paul is using language from the prophet Ezekiel to talk about what God has done by his spirit which only further authenticates Paul as genuine because it's according to the plan of God. In Ezekiel 11, verses 19 and 20, God promised through his prophet, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone, there's the imagery, from their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh. In verse 20, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. There's promise of a new work of God in the future where he will deal with the hardness of their hearts. And again, turn to Ezekiel 36 where this is largely repeated. Ezekiel 36 verse 26 and 27. The Lord is speaking. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God did just that in Corinth. And these imposters that are showing up waving their letters from who we don't know. They probably looked really pretty, maybe in color. They're waving their letters. Paul says, look at what God has done. God has kept his prophetic word. He's transformed you through this gospel of his son under the new covenant. Believers are written letters. Letters written by the Holy Spirit, not by men. You may be converted under so-and-so's ministry. You may have a love for that pastor. I remember my very first pastor as a young believer. I always looked at him and said, I bet that's what the Apostle Paul looked like, thinking of Doug Baltz. 
It's the Spirit who's at work. Let me give you three applications. Let's pause here and make sure we see how these truths should be landing in our lives. Three applications. So I have my little diamonds or bullet points here. Number one, application number one here. Christian conversion is not the work of men, but the Holy Spirit. Christian conversion is not the work of men, but the Holy Spirit. We need reminding of that. Lest we give men too much praise. Although the letters of reference those imposters had, they tried to gather their own following to make their own disciples, repeating the the problems and, and traditions of the Pharisees who only were the blind leading the blind. Paul is pointing out here that if you're in a relationship with God through Christ, it's not the work of men per se. It's done internally. Simon Kistemacher says, they, the Corinthians, are demonstrating their relationship to Christ. God is at work in their lives and he makes it known that they belong to Christ Jesus. We need to remember this as you might share your faith with someone else. You don't make fellow Christians. You, you can be a soul winner. I think Spurgeon enjoyed that title, being a soul winner. But it's Christ who does the work. It's the Holy Spirit who does what only he can do on the hearts of stone. We're up against hearts of stone. And blindness that only the Lord Jesus can cure by his spirit. Keep that in mind as you share. But do share. The second application here. Changed lives confirm the power of the gospel. It's that transformative power from the inside out that Christianity teaches. Liberal Christianity, even mainline Christianity... Some churches that are big on the externals have it all backwards. They think that if you are um, uh, religious externally and you have a certain morality externally, you think that that will begin to change you from the outside in. That's even the theory behind secular humanism. Oh, if we only teach kids how to be good, they'll all be good. If we have a campaign against bullying, it will stop. Yes, we want to point out what we shouldn't do. We need laws, we need programs. But the Bible reminds us that change doesn't come from the outside in, it comes from the inside out. If you're struggling to live the Christian life, if you just have a hard time loving those who don't love you, turning the other cheek, or any of those things, perhaps your Christianity is external, and you need the new birth inside of you. Changed lives confirm the power of the gospel. Let me ask, is your love for the Lord Jesus blossomed into a changed life? Has there been a change in you that is attributable to the Spirit of God working in you? I remember years ago hanging out with the Rotarians in the Rotary Club. Good group, they do good things. And I was shocked when one guy says, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to so-and-so church once in a while. I go, really? (laughs) It was a surprise that he professed Christ when his life professed him. 
Not that he was evil or outwardly wicked. He did not seem to be a disciple of Jesus at all to me. A changed life confirms the power of the gospel working in you. We kind of stumbled across that during our prayer meeting devotional this past week. We looked at the end of Matthew 25 and Jesus was teaching about the great and final judgment. And he said, uh, he separated the sheep from the goats and he said to the sheep, enter into the joy of your master. For when I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you came and visited me. And they said, when did we do all that? He said, as much as you did it to one of these fellow believers, you did it unto me. A transformed life, a changed life, and a fruitful life confirms the power of the gospel from the inside out. And isn't that what Ezekiel had prophesied? I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You walk differently if you're a Christian. If the spirit of God is within you. Yes, we stumble and fall and sometimes we stray. We walk in the wrong direction. Every one of us. And the Lord brings us back because he wants a changed life. A third application here, changed lives draw attention to the gospel. Oh, and I love this. I love this. Changed lives draw attention to the gospel. I was reading Douglas Kelly. It's not so much a a commentary on this passage. He had passionate essays that he delivered in Europe about 25 years ago because Europe was post-Christian and they were discouraged and he was teaching them all about 2 Corinthians so they would see the power of the gospel and gospel-shaped ministry. So reading his work is really hopeful and helpful for us today. He said, looking back at Paul in the early church, he said it was the glory of the lives of the Christians that had such a profound argument for the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is. So that when everything else in society was falling apart, even the pagans turned to the Christians. We saw that in our recent Sunday school class. In the second century, Christianity grew and flourished because lives were being changed. People would say, I want what they have. Look at the the happy home. Look at the happy marriage. Look at the integrity of that man and the calmness of that woman. And their joy and their love one for another. I want what they have. And so many investigated Christianity. Didn't Jesus tell us, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. They will know you are Christians by your love, by your life. I'm sure you've heard of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Right? Billy Graham and his many ministries, his many large events where people are invited to come forward. He just preached the gospel, plain and simple. He is to be admired in that. Well, the association statistics say, listen to this, over 90% of all who come forward at those Billy Graham events, 90% say they had seen someone who was living a Christian life that had impressed them. Ninety percent of those who were responding to Billy Graham, who heard the truth, had seen that truth in power being lived out. So I love this point. 
changed lives draw attention to the gospel. If we want to see our church grow evangelistically, step one, live openly for Christ. You don't have to be perfect. You just need to follow Christ and lean upon his grace and pursue those things he calls us to do. Doug Kelly said about this evangelistic impact, an ordinary Christian walking in the light, walking in the spirit, loving Christ, faithfully serving God, a glory breaks forth. That's the most powerful argument which can break hearts and open doors. Our God conquers through vessels such as us. Well, the second heading this morning will be brief. Confidence for ministry is from the Holy Spirit. Our confidence is centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 4 of our text makes that clear, even in that word such. Verse 4 says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ. Paul had seen it work and produce a church, and so he's confident all the more as Christ would work. In fact, when he gets to chapter 5 of this same letter, he will write this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul knows that he does not make people new. Christ does that. But Paul has this ministry of reconciliation. So all his hopes are on Christ. His voice of confidence would later come out to the Philippians as well. Do you know Philippians 4.13? It's in context of doing God's will and ministry, not just doing what you want. Paul said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. His confidence was in Christ through him, who he is, what he does. So the second point here is God enables his servants to serve. It's not circular reasoning, it's just plain and simple. God enables his servants to serve. He calls us to do something and helps us do it. In chapter 2 of our letter, Paul had asked, who is sufficient for these things? Chapter 2, verse 16, he almost sounded overwhelmed. Who is sufficient? Life and death is happening when we preach the gospel. Who can, who can deal with that? Who's sufficient? And Paul answers his question here. He says in verse Five of chapter 3, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Paul says, I don't have much to offer. Does it remind you of the words of Peter to the beggar? Silver or gold have I none, but what I have, I'm going to give you. Do you remember that? You have what Peter has to give. You have gospel truth. Because God enables his servants to serve. You remember when God called Moses? I have in my notes only talk about Moses if you have enough time. So I'm going to let you do that on your own. Go back to Exodus chapter 4. When God called Moses, Moses kind of said, I don't know if I'm your guy. God says, I made you. I can use you. God enables his servants to serve. And when Paul uses the word serve here, Uh, In verse 6, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. The word ministers is is the word for deacon, is the word for servant. So Paul says, I can serve. I can 
uh, minister. I'm not the lofty clergyman academic. I am the one with the towel and the wash basin. I'm here to serve that type of ministry. And God enables it. God is sufficient. God is all sufficient. What do you think God's name means when you said God is almighty? What do you mean when you say God is almighty? I know what I mean. In part, I mean God is all sufficient for all I need and all you need. When we call God the almighty, that's who he is. And he is that for us. Confidence for ministry is from the Spirit. There's life in the promised new covenant. We'll pick up the new covenant next week with the next paragraph. I know it sounds very interesting when he says the letter kills, the Spirit gives life. Let me just emphasize, we are under the new covenant and it comes with power to obey. It comes with blood-bought guarantees that God is at work in us in changing us. It's a new covenant ministry. It fulfills what Jeremiah 31 prophesied. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Jeremiah 31, 33. Three applications to this heading. Here we go. When called to serve, don't hide behind your weakness. When called to serve, don't hide behind your weakness. Someone here in the church might ask you to do something. Have you considered this ministry? Would you like to pitch in with that? Don't hide behind your weakness. Don't be like Moses. Don't be awed by the task or the visibility. If God prompts you and God calls you, serve. Because when God's call comes, human insufficiency, says one commentator, becomes the grounds for God's sufficiency. God is strong even in my weakness, said Paul. Second application, be a good steward of your spiritual gift. Every believer has at least one spiritual gift. What do I mean? It is something from the Holy Spirit that God will use for spiritual good in the lives of others in his kingdom. Every Christian has at least one spiritual gift. Do you know what yours is? If you don't, there's some people here with... Experience, we call them elders, who can help you discern what your gifts are. It may take a few conversations and some Bible study, but let's find out what your gift is so that you can use it and be a good steward of it. That's what Peter wrote in his first letter, a text that was read 27 years ago at my ordination. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 1 Peter 4 verses 10 and 11. Be a good steward of your spiritual gift. And finally, be amazed at God's gracious new covenant. 
We'll talk more about the New Covenant next week, but just be amazed. It's different than coming to Sinai. It's different than walking under the Mosaic prescriptions. It's something new. And as we'll hear in a moment when we come to our communion table from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the report from Jesus when he took up the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You see, in the new covenant, we simply have faith in Christ. Our sufficiency is from him. Our life is from him. Our hope is anchored in him. And we remember him in the new covenant. Be amazed. Be like that former slave trader. Good old Johnny Newton. Do you remember Johnny Newton? was a slave trader. He, he uh, was out with all the rough guys on ships. He, he talked and swore like a sailor. And he enslaved people. And for a while, he was enslaved when he got into a bind. But years later, the Lord converted him. And then, get this, then called, jo- called Johnny Newton into the ministry. So he puts on his clerical gowns. And he's a preacher of the gospel. And in 1772... I'm sure with just an awestruck look on his face, he penned the words to amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Are you amazed at God's grace to you in the new covenant? Doesn't that new outpouring of grace through Jesus Christ call for some awe and amazement on our our behalf? We should just stand in awe of who God is and what he has done for wretches like me who once were lost, but now we are found. As we close this sermon and turn towards communion, let me just ask, what is your response to God's grace to you in Christ? Will you covenant with God? Will you find your sufficiency in Christ? And will you serve and witness to the power of the gospel even with your weaknesses? Will you? Will you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your word, your good and holy word. We pray that you impress it upon each and every heart and mind as you do work inside us that no preacher or teacher can do We pray one for another, Lord, that we would have ears to hear. We pray that we would have hearts to believe, that we would not be calloused and self-centered or wayward and dismiss the truth of your word. May we bow our knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and find him to be our sufficiency, our joy, and our hope and power forever. It is in his name we ask. Amen. Amen.